Hi and welcome to the Guru Performance We Do Science podcast, uh, sponsored by Healthspan Elite, which I'll tell you more about at the end of this uh, episode. So today, welcome Dr. Kirsty and Sale. How are you doing? I'm fine. Thank you very much for inviting me on. So I do have to warn folks that um, technology for these podcasts is not equipped with a translation system. <laughs> so... Um, so uh, we'll see. We'll see if everyone has luck of the Irish on this. So I know you're a, a good Irish lady, um, but um, I'll have faith in the fact that uh, everyone can uh, can cut through that Irish slang and uh, and get the, the the nitty gritty and the science out of there. So we'll see what happens. We'll see what sort of what sort of comments come back about what the hell did she just say? <laughs> so I will talk slowly. I promise. You promise. I, but yeah, but like all Irish people, start speeding up towards the end of the conversation. <laughs> um, um, or is that when alcohol is involved? Anyway, I don't know. So, Kirsty, um, for the viewers that don't know who you are, um, if you could uh, possibly tell us a little bit more about yourself and your research interests and where you where you uh, work, etc. Okay. So. Um from the beginning, um, I went and did my degree in coaching science at Liverpool John Moores. Um, and following that, I, I jumped straight on to a PhD. I was really lucky. My supervisors were Professor Tom Riley and Professor Tim Cable. And my PhD was in exercise physiology. And more specifically, I was looking at the effect of female reproductive hormones um, on muscle strength. Um, and I was I was super lucky that within that PhD I got to do quite a lot of um, clinical experiments with Liverpool Women's Hospital. So I was able to extend my research um, from the usual menstrual cycle studies and oral contraceptive studies into things like in vitro fertilisation treatment and and pregnancy. So that was a, a terrific experience. Um, after that, I lectured for um, a short time at Brunel University and then also at the University of Brighton before I actually left lecturing to, to go back to my research roots and I did um, a four-year postdoc at King's College in London. And um, Then I had a, a mini career break and, and, and added to the world in, in that time and now I'm back and I'm lecturing again whilst obviously trying to keep up my research momentum um, and that's at Nottingham Trent University. Brilliant. Yes, and of course, some people may may uh, think, "Hang on, the uh, the second half of your your name sounds familiar," and that's because you are the better half of uh, Craig Sale, aren't you? So, um, and inter- and interestingly, I know both of you, and um, our, our conversations are considerably more interesting than you might think they would be, considering. <laughs> how, how much uh, how much uh, intelligence you guys both have? So. Listen, Kirsty, um, the reason why I asked you onto this podcast today was because you came and did some lectures for us on the ISSN diploma recently, and um, you, you delivered several lectures, one of which, of course, was an area you focused your PhD on, which was very much about, you know, sort of the, the, the sort of important physiological and hormonal needs of, of female athletes, which I found fascinating, but particularly we got into this, well, what was formerly known as the female athlete triad. Um, and I know that that has been revised um, and we now think of this relative energy deficiency syndrome um, as defined by a recent IOC consensus document, which um, is particularly exciting because 
it's not just about women, it, it includes men. And, and the reason why I'm interested in this, um, partly because it's not discussed enough, is some of the spheres that I work in a lot is about manipulating body composition. And one of the things that we have to do in order to do that, of course, is to start manipulating energy intake. Um, and that's where people can run into a bit of trouble. And we've, just, we've explored this in, in various ways throughout this podcast, body composition specifically uh, for health, for performance, uh, you know, just, just for how people look, that sort of thing. We've talked about implications for metabolic adaptation, this idea that you can lose body fat and gain muscle at the same time and so on. But what we haven't really gone into is the implications of the energy deficiency itself and how that can influence physiology in men and women um, beyond just out of, of performance outcomes because as I always say throughout this podcast you know our, our, although we work with an athlete population or recreationally active people they are still human beings first and health is an important consideration so let's let's sort of get into this topic a bit and I think I, I guess it would be worth maybe discussing the female athlete triad first, possibly. Um, so if you could maybe just give us a bit of background about what that even is. What are we even talking about here? Okay, so the female athlete triad has been around for, for quite a quite some time. And I think you know, there's a huge body of evidence in, in support of this um, syndrome. It's a very well-accepted and you know widely reported um, reported syndrome. So, so firstly, we're, we're all in agreement that it exists. It has had um, a number of, of stages. So the initial stage, um, it's in a pyramid and it was disordered eating at, at the top and then it had amenorrhea and osteoporosis as, as the two other branches. It then got slightly updated. So instead of only disordered eating, it included low energy availability. So obviously that's quite a, quite a big difference. So um, obviously disordered eating and, and the connotation and aspects of that versus you know, maybe athletes who have low energy availability without having um, an eating disorder. So it expanded that first initial um, top point of the, per- of the triangle. And then alongside osteoporosis, it included or expanded that term to include bone loss. And then on the other point, it also expanded amenorrhea to also include menstrual disturbances. So that meant that, you know, if you had um, something that was um, different or some alteration in your menstrual cycle that wasn't classified under amenorrhea, that they would still accept this as, as being a negative outcome. And then I guess that brings us almost up to the most current version of, of the um the triad, which again has low energy availability at the top, with or without an eating disorder, um, functional um, hypothalamic amenorrhea down in the other corner, and I'll come back in a second and explain exactly what that is, and then osteoporosis in the other point of the triangle, but the most recent version then has almost another triangle behind it to indicate that there's a whole continuum, and the sort of secondary triangle behind it is obviously um, optimal um, energy availability, optimal bone health, and regular menstruating females. So it has been expanded and, and revised into three sort of um, different um, versions, and this most recent one is the accepted one. I did say I would come back and tell you what functional hypothalamic um, amenorrhea is, and that's basically when. Um, so, for example, increased um, exercise energy expenditure, it causes um, the pulsatile nature of luteinizing hormone um, to be suppressed, 
And when that's suppressed, obviously, you get this sort of blunted um, estrogen response and you end up with amenorrhea and it's called functional because it's because of something we've done as opposed to being something sort of anatomical or physiological. So that's exactly what that term means. So all we're doing is in the triad, we're putting together this concept of low energy availability and the effect it has on sort of reproductive health as in this amenorrhea and menstrual cycle and on the other point of the triangle bone health in terms of more specifically osteoporosis. Yes, no, th- thank you. That's very comprehensive. And I, I think what's clear from this is, you know, and we don't always think about this when we start to manipulate energy intake, um, you know, cutting calories, whatever the outcome is. There are very, uh, very potentially broad and diverse consequences to um, reducing energy. Because, of course, we don't eat energy, we eat food. And associated with that food is, you know, stuff that the body uses, which maybe, you know, may more acutely is, is, say, for energy, but the longer-term benefits of those uh, components found within food is potentially for, like you've pointed out, you know, it could be uh, affecting um, mineral density, uh, could affect uh, reproductive health, growth and development, not just what we're looking to achieve from a performance perspective, but, I mean, it's incredibly... Uh, incredibly wide-ranging but I guess where people tend to fall foul of this is is they don't realize when they're in this situation Um, I mean do you want to maybe just give us a little little overview of of sort of you know the the timings involved in some of these situations Well, so, I mean, I think that most people accept sort of energy balance to be around that sort of 45 kilocalories um, per kilogram fat-free mass, get that right per day. Um, And I think then the exact number below that where we, you know, accept energy restriction or or the term low energy availability i mean that that's still debatable um i mean i've i've read papers where you know 10 is the critical number 10 kilocalories and as such so on um some are 15 and, and some are 20 um i think obviously you're going to see that in the sort of sports which have obviously weight categories um or that are you know particularly lend themselves to to lightweight individuals and then the aesthetic sports too so I mean there are obviously a number of sports a number of situations and you know a a somewhat loose threshold in terms of of energy availability that that we accept but you know it is um, you know it's it's quite widespread um, you know seeing athletes who are within this female athlete triad and I think by virtue of the fact that they've recently put it on a continuum that's obviously increased the number of, of individuals because you know they had to be sort of quite far down you know the you know the negative aspects of the triad before they sort of could be categorized whereas now we see a lot more early on we're diagnosing earlier we're intervening earlier so so that's fantastic and the continuum of the female athlete triad has really helped in, in that respect yeah i mean i i think it's incredibly important and that's that's why i wanted to do this podcast was to increase the um awareness of, of this stuff because we're not really just talking about elite athletes here of course the 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 victims if you like the 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 people that are directly suffering from this situation are those that are chronically engaging in a lifestyle or or you know it doesn't have to be a professional 
athlete, as I've just mentioned. You know, there's plenty of recreational um, athletes. We'll focus on females temporarily, but we will get into men in a bit. Where they are in this chronic low energy availability, particularly the... I mean, there's this huge growth of recreational triathletes that exist out there. Um, there's a massive growth in... Um, sort of physique competitors, you know, all the sort of female um, natural bodybuilders, bikini um, models, that sort of thing, where they're competing um, not once a year, but all the time. Um, and of course, even those that feel social pressure to look a certain way, um, you know, in, in particularly now we're in the summer here in the UK um, <laughs> for the next 10 minutes. <laughs> although, although, uh, Although in your home homeland of Ireland, there's probably only five minutes of summer. Um, but, you know, those those are the people that we're talking about here. Um, so maybe we could just maybe uh, delve into that a bit more about who who the actual likely suspects are. The, the, you know, who, who are the people that are most likely to be in this situation? I mean, historically, we're talking about, you know, lightweight rowers, um, the triathletes, as you mentioned, um, ballet dancers, long distance um, sort of endurance events, particularly runners. Um, so, you know, quite sort of um, intuitive groups, I'd almost say. So looking at those those individuals who have got either um, sort of low energy intake um, and, and actually with the low energy intake, what is interesting is that um, sometimes, obviously, that's on purpose. Um, sometimes that is disordered eating. Um, sometimes it's purposeful in terms of somebody, you know, is trying to do it to make a weight. But I think what we should appreciate is sometimes there's low energy intake, um, which is not on purpose, which could be through, you know, just a lack of knowledge. So they don't know the right things to eat. And, and as such are, you know, not taking in, in either the right amount or the right things. And it could also be, you know, something else entirely outside of whether it's sport or, as you say, the recreational athletes. It could be a home situation, you know, people who are extremely busy who are trying to, you know, keep a job, a full-time job going at the same time as competing, all of those things. So, you know, we're, we're considering individuals with this inadequate dietary intake, but also, obviously, then the contribution from the exercise energy expenditure. So, again, looking at sort of individuals who have got, you know, extremely high training loads, and when you consider something like a female triathlete, um, obviously they've got three disciplines um, to master. So, so that's extremely, extremely hard. So if you take, you know, um, the, the runners, they have to, obviously, they've got the training loads for running. Obviously, the triathletes got the swimming and, and the cycling on top of that. And then if you were to consider, obviously, if you're thinking about bone, um, if you're really looking at the triad, if you're considering the intake, the expenditure and then the type of activity so for example the the swimming isn't weight bearing and um, nor is the cycling and then once you have the weight bearing activity like the running well that's high impact so that in itself whilst the weight bearing may have a negative effect on still with um, bone with with the high repetitive impact and strain so it's, it's really you know really difficult for an athlete like that so hopefully I've answered your question in terms of you know, athletes, aesthetic athletes mm. and you know um, particularly those with with high training loads and obviously we don't know yet the contribution of you know dietary intake versus energy expenditure it's likely to be a combination but we don't know the exact effect size for, for either of those absolutely and uh, as I said you know one of the problems with trying to achieve a low level of energy intake where 
you know, commonly that will be to manipulate uh, body composition because it affects so many things. Um, is this associated lack of intake of certain nutrients like iron, for example, um, fatty acids, especially, you know, certain kinds of fatty acids, which um, aren't just a source of calories. These things are needed by the body to manufacture uh, things like hormones, for example. So I guess that sort of segues then into one of the more obvious consequences of how this can affect people, which is the impact that it has on menstrual function. Um, you know, and as I said, it's not just women. You know, uh, men, of course, don't have menstrual function specifically, but it does affect their hormones. But, but maybe you could just take us for a bit more about what menstrual function is, just for those that don't know, and the implications that this has for um, this situation with with the hormonal situation. Okay, um, so in terms of you know what we consider to be a menstrual cycle, well, a menstrual cycle is. Um, a cyclical repeating pattern and we refer, we refer to individuals with a menstrual cycle as being eumenorrheic. Now if you open a textbook it will likely tell you that an ordinary or normal menstrual cycle is, is 28 days. In fact to be considered eumenorrheic your menstrual cycle can be anything from between 21 days to 35. Okay so that, that's quite a, quite a big range so you know firstly don't panic if you're outside of this textbook 28 days. We use 28 days so that we then, when we go on to talk about the different phases, it sort of just allows us to talk in a more general way that, that everybody will, will understand. So taking that into account, with a normal menstrual cycle, we have, I would say, three distinct phases. Um, we have the, the first phase, um, which is menstruation, um, which is, which is the, the bleeding portion of the menstrual cycle. And that's quite important. That marks day one of the cycle. And that's a really important indicator. So if you're working with any athletes or, or recreational um, recreationally actively individuals, you know, that, that's what you need to be talking about. You know, what's day one? Please let us know what day one is, and then we can track everything from there. Um, so in that phase of menstruation, we know that estrogen and, and progesterone are low. So, so that's fine, and, and we, know, we know what's happening there. We then have a, a sort of a, an interim phase where estrogen starts to rise, and then we get to the phase where I think most people know, you know, know about, even if you're, you're not into science and you're not into sport, most people know about ovulation. So that's right in the middle of the, the cycle, so around day 14. It's when we see the highest concentration in estrogen. Um, but progesterone is, is still quite low at that point. And then in that sort of then third latter stage of the menstrual cycle, um, we get a slight dropping off of estrogen, but it's the time when progesterone increases, and that's referred to as, as the luteal phase. So if I just wanted to recap so that you can all feel like you're experts when, when you've listened to this, you need to remember at the start of the cycle, estrogen and progesterone are low, and that's menstruation. In the middle, around day 14, oestrogen peaks, and that's ovulation, and progesterone is still low. And then in the third phase, we have what we would refer to as lower oestrogen, but it's still higher than, than the start, and high progesterone. So they're the three phases. Mm. So that's the type of sort of profile we're looking at. I mean, if you're considering the triad, then obviously we're most interested in oestrogen because it affects bone. But I think it's interesting and important to remember what happens to progesterone because progesterone obviously has the um, potential to affect other physiological systems. So that's, that's sort of the main group in terms of menstrual cycle. Let's just quickly rewind back to the start when we talked about amenorrhea. Well, amenorrhea means that you don't have this cyclical um, hormone profile. 
there are sort of two main accepted types of amenorrhea. The first one is primary amenorrhea, and that's um, that relates to girls who have gone through puberty or the expected age of puberty. So we're talking about girls who have reached 16 and have never had any menstruation, um, they've never had any bleeding, and so we call that primary amenorrhea. So the cycle hasn't started, it's delayed in that way. Or you've got secondary amenorrhea, which is more likely what we see in the athletic population where we have this arrested menstrual cycle. So they had something cyclical and due to whatever reason, generally high training loads or, or low dietary intake, their um, menstrual cycle is arrested and basically they end up with low concentrations of both hormones and um, they don't have this nice cyclical pattern of, of the reproductive hormones. So they're really your two main players. You will see sort of other weird and wonderful, very specific terminology um, when it comes to, to this area. We have, and I hope I'm pronouncing this right with my Irish accent, but we have ogliomenorrhea, and that basically just refers to the groups who are either less than 21 days or greater than the 35 days that we accept from menstrual cycle. So they're the sort of groups that we're talking about just in terms of normal endogenous hormones. If you want me to, maybe later on, we'll talk about the other groups because I think you'll be interested yeah. in those, but they're oral contraceptive users, etc. But we'll come back to those. Yeah, and I mean, look, you know, this just shows you how complex this is and how important it is to understand some of these things because, of course, it's not a, you know, hormonal balance, if you like, for a very basic term. It's not, it's not a static thing. It's not just the same the whole way. And I guess where I'm interested in is not just the the influence of, of diet and energy availability on menstrual function or hormonal balance generally, but also how this ties into performance outcomes, because obviously that's as performance nutritionists or sports scientists, that's, that's where we're interested. So how about you know, that side of, of the story? I mean, that is just a great question. Um, I don't. <laughs> well, yeah. no, I'm going to take back the compliment now, and uh -oh. I'm going to tell you that there is no short answer to that question. It's, it, I mean, it's it's a huge question. Yeah. Um, I guess the way I like to answer this question is, um, we're not sure, and I know that sounds like you know somewhat of a of a cop out answer, but we're not sure, and and I'll tell you why. Two main reasons. One, I think when we talk about performance, performance is already a, a very um, variable beast. Okay, so we know that lots of different things, you know, affect it, and all of these things have to come together to to get that end performance. So if you consider how variable performance is, and then the potential influence of the menstrual cycle it's likely that the potential influence of the menstrual cycle will be swallowed up in, in other noise and other variability. So that's one thing. The second, and for me, this is, you know, absolutely, you know, my swan song, all of my papers in some way talk about this. Um, unfortunately, when you try and read research relating to the effects of the menstrual cycle on any aspect of performance or any real phys physiological system, the... The methodologies of, of those papers are, are very, um, oh, I'm thinking of a good word. Let's put it this way. There are a lot of methodological challenges associated with this type of research. And, and if, you, if you let me, I'll, I'll give you a couple of quick examples. Could this be a case of context by any chance? Pardon? Could this be a case of context? <laughs> it's absolutely <laughs> 
context. Absolutely. I believe you have another podcast on that exact topic. I do. I do. I do. Yes. <laughs> nice link there. And mm. um, no, but absolutely. When when you come to talk about these studies, it, it's very hard to group them. So, for example, I gave you a, a brief, quick overview on on what I consider to be the the phases of the menstrual cycle. So, a problem could be that you read my paper and I say. I tested during the follicular phase and you know I'm accepting the follicular phase to be day one to five and then the next author you read their paper and they say yes I also tested in the follicular phase but they're taking the follicular phase to be day one to fourteen now I've already explained to you in day one to sort of five you've got these low concentrations but by the time you're approaching fourteen estrogen's already on the way up so actually I would argue that that person's got two phases in there, whereas I've only got one. And then if we try, you know, anybody tries to read our papers, compare them and come up with a definitive conclusion, they're not comparing like with like. So this concept of phase definition, you know, despite researching this for now, you know, a hundred years, we're still not in agreement on, on phase definition. Um, the same is also true for how we um, quantify or identify these phases. So it may well be that in, in my papers, um, I take a blood sample and I measure their hormone concentration. And, you know, that, that, that's, a, that's a number that's quantifiable. The next paper, they might say, well, we just counted days. We asked the girls, you know, this is day one menstruation, come in on day 22. Well, that's fine if everybody has a 28-day cycle. But day 22 might be the girl with the 21-day cycle. Hang on a minute, she's already into the next one. And if the girl, another girl has a 35-day cycle, day 22 is not exactly where it should be in the 28-day model. So identifying phases obviously also um, poses this challenge. So again, the literature is just, you know, absolutely littered with really a lot of papers that you can compare. So the, the short answer is, great question. I don't have an answer. <laughs> I think it's likely, yes, the menstrual cycle will affect some physiological systems and some aspects of performance. However, you know, you're really going to need to sift through those papers carefully, trying to pick out what I would consider to be the gold standard techniques and then trying to draw your own conclusion. Sure. So, so that, that's where I'm at. No, no, sure. No, that's great. And I, you know, we don't often differentiate what we, what, you know, what we mean by sort of performance and, you know, the, and health and all these sorts of things. And I, and I guess the the significant concern with those that are, that are in this situation is maybe not so much about performance because of course there's plenty of females performing in this this triad or in, in these other sort of red situations that we'll talk about in a minute um, with perfectly decent performance but it's the long-term consequences that we're not necessarily considering and and, and of course athletes may well want to take that risk you know we, we all know these stories of you know, people saying if you knew you could win, you know, the Olympics um, at a at a cost, for example, of testing positive, um, so, sorry, uh, at a cost of uh, dying from taking some drug that you don't get caught for, or you know, some health implication. As long as you got that gold medal, you're kind of happy. You know, athletes will make a lot of sacrifices, but it is these sacrifices that 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 we need to help them understand as as coaches and scientists and, and practitioners and I, and I guess uh, aside from the reproductive consequences uh, one obvious area is is bone health right yeah ab absolutely i mean you know 
considering that the last question was about performance, and that's still very undecided, we are much more confident about the, the health um, associations um, with, with sort of um, menstrual dysfunction. So obviously we know that um, it can cause problems with fertility um, and, and that whole sort of reproductive functioning. I mean, when, when you consider if, um, you know, um, any athlete whose body is undergoing periods of energy restriction, um, the body's priority is, you know, thermoregulation, locomotion. Its priority is not reproductive functioning. So, you know, it, it will stop that first. And I think what, you know, anybody who's exercising or, or an elite level athlete needs to consider is, you know, can they turn that reproductive functioning back on? And if so, how long that might take? And I mean, it, it is possible, it is possible that, you know, especially if um, there's, you know, weight gain, um, a reduced training load and increased dietary intake, we, we do see the return of, of menstrual um, functioning and reproductive functioning. But it is, it's, it's a gamble. The long-term sort of fertility issues is, is a big issue. Obviously then, going back to the, the triad, you know, the relationship between um, estrogen and bone is, is well established, you know, um, and I'm sure you've got podcasts on, on, on that relationship and, and the physiology behind mm. bone metabolism. Mm. So suffice to say that we're confident and we have the supporting research to say that if you alter your menstrual functioning, and what we're really talking about here is amenorrhea, down-regulating your estrogen, if you do that, we are confident, we, we know that there is a relationship with bone health and you're likely to see um, something approaching, you know, osteopenia, osteoporosis in the future. But as you said, you know, that's a real long-term chronic issue and a lot of athletes think, well, you know, that that's tomorrow, that's not today. And and I think a lot of people think they can live with something like osteoporosis. I, I, I mean, I recently heard an athlete say to me, um, well, you know, that only affects me if I fall over. And factually, she's right, you know, osteoporosis, as long as you walk around and you never trip, you never fall, it's likely to have a very small effect. But when you do fall, and, you know, all of us fall, you know, especially the Irish on a, on a Saturday night, but we all fall or trip or, or, you know, bang ourselves, walk into the side of a door, anything, then it's it's a huge problem. And, and I think it's, it's a very underestimated problem. So, yes, very much so. Athletes tend to think about the short-term gain, the medals, you know, the career, and then, you know, think osteoporosis, well, I'm going to be old anyway, this is, you know, it's a, it's a disease of the elderly, but, you know, we see um, osteoporotic athletes, you know, in, in their 30s, in their 40s, so perhaps not quite as long-term or chronic as they might expect. So, actually, that's great you mentioned that, because that's another segue into, well, it's not entirely a segue, because we're sort of talking about this, but I think what's worth talking about here is, yes, it is, it is perfectly possible to achieve a temporary state of uh, low energy availability or even a relative level of energy deficiency to achieve a certain goal as long as it's strategically um, achieved and with the appropriate help and support of, of you know, the various uh, correct people involved in that process. However, what we should probably delve into is the amount of of time it takes to recover from these situations, and I guess if we if we if we split this into three different things, um, you know, the time it takes to recover from um, issues, well, recover from low energy status, uh, recover from menstrual issues relating to this, and then recovery from bone mineral density issues. Yeah, I mean, the the quick answer is that if if you're considering it in in terms of a timeline. 
you'll recover in terms of energy availability. You know, that's that's days or weeks. So, so that's going to be the, the quickest one to, to be recovered. In terms of the menstrual function, it's it's more likely to be months. Um, and then in terms of bone health, th that realistically is, is years. Um, I mean, you will have obviously people who will talk about, you know, for example, bone markers, um, you know, um, in, in blood or in urine. And you may see, um, you know, quite a, a quick change in, in the bone markers. But in terms of actual sort of structural properties in, in bone mineral content, then, then really you're looking at, at years for that. So as I say, you know, the quickest is energy availability, menstrual function in the middle, and then bone health towards the end. But I think perhaps something that we've, we've missed out, which may compound this and, and, and slightly muddy the waters, are those athletes who are, for example, on oral contraceptives. Um, because the triad only really you know, kicks in when somebody is amenorrheic. But if you consider you know, somebody who may not be amenorrheic, but is on the oral contraceptive, and, and that's a bit of a, an oxymoron, because you can't tell whether or not they're amenorrheic because they're on an oral contraceptive. But anyway, if they're on an oral contraceptive, they have pretty much the same profile as an amenorrheic athlete. And I think that's often, you know, overlooked. So if you have somebody who has got, you know, okay energy availability, but who takes the oral contraceptive, you know, for a long time, which, which you know, women tend to do, suddenly somebody who may not have gone, you know, veered off into the triad is now rapidly approaching it. So I think that you need to consider that as well. So when we're talking about that time scale, obviously, when we're talking about the return of, of menstrual function, consider is your athlete an oral contraceptive user because if they are that return which could have been you know a small you know a, a few months that may be a lot longer because they have a really chronic downregulation of estrogen so that just sort of as i say it's an extra issue when you consider the timeline yeah and of course that that's why we need to delve deeply into our athletes or our clients uh, health histories and acquire that sort of information because these problems might be occurring you know without us seeing those symptoms because of course you wouldn't expect to see those symptoms if you're on that um, contraceptive pill for example uh, it's sort of uh, it, it's, 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 it's an interesting one so let, let's let's move slightly um, beyond this concept of the female athlete triad and let's let's involve the guys in on this one as well where um, or everyone really, um, where we now have this this new title, which is relative energy deficiency in sport. Perhaps you could uh, describe that for us in a bit more detail. Okay. Well, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. We have this this new concept of relative energy deficiency in sport. I think at the moment people are are still, you know, split between the two groups. I don't think one has overtaken the other. I don't think that we're upgrading female athlete triad to relative energy deficiencies, but I think it's still very much a split camp. So let, let's say that first. The second thing is that with the relative energy deficiency in sport, and, and perhaps you'll allow me to call it REDS, just so that it's yeah. a bit long-winded, but with um, this idea of REDS, it, it's still in its infancy. It's, it's, it came out last year, so 2014, and the paper came out and, and has caused a, a lot of debate. But I guess the main things that you would need to know is that 
it expands the idea of the female athlete triad and it does so in a number of ways. So firstly, we're seeing the inclusion of, of male athletes, which, which we don't have obviously in the female athlete triad. Um, it also includes non-Caucasians and disabled athletes. So it's a, it's a very inclusive, as you sort of said in your question, it, it's sort of for everybody. Um, so, so that's new and, 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 and somewhat different. Um, the other thing to mention is that obviously when you look at the triad, the, the sort of the aspect within the triad is health, it's bone health. Whereas when you look at reds, it has two options. You get your diagram for health, which would include um, bone health and osteoporosis, but you also get another diagram, um, and I'll talk about what those diagrams look like in a moment, but the other diagram refers um, solely to performance. So they've split health and performance, which is which is obviously new. Um, I mean, the the triad, as I described at the start, is a triangle. Whereas the diagrams that come with reds, they're um, a hub and spoke diagram. Um, so you have this idea of um, relative energy deficiency in sport in in the middle, and then sort of you know coming mm -hmm. from that, you've got all aspects of um, performance or, or all aspects of health. So it's it's very much an expanded idea. Um, in terms of which camp you should be in, I mean that's absolutely up to your your listeners to decide. I would you know counsel people to read um, obviously the, the consensus statement from the Reds group. Then there's obviously a paper from the female athlete triad group, which is a, a bit of a you know um, it's it's refuting that sort of concept, but read both, um, in fact prob probably put a third paper in there on the female athlete triad um, and, and then make up your own mind. Maybe some of the things to, to point out is that when you consider the reds, I said that's in its infancy, when something's in its infancy I think it's fair to say that um, there's a lack of evidence to support this and, and I don't see that necessarily as being a bad thing. You know, an idea has to start somewhere. So I think, you know, what I would say is, you know, if you're considering reds and you read the, the rebuttal paper which says there's a lack of evidence, you know, that's, that's okay. You know, evidence will come, you know, and, and so I think take that with maybe a pinch of salt. So there's a lack of evidence, but, but maybe that's just because we're, we're starting out. And it's good to get these ideas out early doors rather than sit on it, wait for the evidence and come out in another 10 or 20 years time. So, so that's the first point. The evidence base is difference between the um, female athlete triad and reds. Um, we've said that the participants are different, so obviously females in the triad and, and everybody in reds. Um, possibly one other thing just to point out in terms of which group you may end up in is that sort of um, with the hub and spoke diagram, it sort of infers that all of the systems are, are independent. So, so maybe let me give you an, an, an example of that. So in, for example, the, um, the Reds Health um, diagram, you've got Reds in the middle and then you have things like uh, in one um, pocket you have menstrual function, another pocket bone health, another pocket endocrine, another pocket metabolic. So I'm only just taking a few examples, there are many more. And the way the diagram is set out could be misinterpreted to infer that all of these systems are different um, and, and independent. But obviously what we would say is, the little ball which has the menstrual function in it would probably obviously have another line round to its endocrine function because obviously the menstrual cycle is driven by endocrinology. So I guess that would be sort of maybe the last thing to consider when you're making up your mind, 
you know, not to misinterpret their diagrams. Um, and maybe that's something that it's just an aesthetic diagram and we shouldn't read too much into it. So hopefully, without going on too much, I've given you just maybe, you know, what to read, what sort of things to look out for, and then things to sort of scratch your head and ponder a little bit more. Yeah. No, I, I, look, as I said at the beginning, I think this stuff's important because people don't talk about it enough. And oftentimes what's happening is people embark on a training and nutritional regime which invariably will result in some sort of um, low energy availability or um, an actual energy deficiency, usually for a protracted period of time. Now, in their head, particularly those that are focused on body composition manipulation, particularly fat loss, they don't realize that you're not, you're not just cutting calories, you're not just losing fat, you're losing potentially bone density, you're losing immunity, you're losing potentially reproductive health, you're, you know, the loss is a lot more than just fat. So overeating slightly or, or maybe getting your energy intake uh, more on more on the ball, more on point, um, is 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 not just about uh, maybe reducing your cravings. It's about reducing a whole lot of problems later on in life. And a lot of people do they they, they overshoot that mark um, because of their their desire to manipulate what they can see, which is their body fat, for example, in the mirror. Um, as opposed to what they can't see, and that I guess is a reason why maybe these are these are things that do warrant getting some help or support from people who know a bit bit more about that. So, for example, working with a you know a registered uh, sports nutritionist or a registered sports dietitian or you know a sports medicine doctor or you know there's all kinds of professionals out there. Sport you know certain kinds of sports scientists and so on. So I guess that. That's a bit of a segue into a slightly more sort of pragmatic side of this, and that is, you know, at what point should we start to maybe seek help and advice, either for ourselves or for our clients or partners or children or whatever, where we start to see some of these these signs? Well, that's... Um, I it's a difficult one. Yeah. I think you've, you've got a lot of groups in there. I mean... Probably the most straightforward group are for the athletes because I think um, coaches, um, if they're you know if they're really elite, they'll be working obviously with sports nutritionists already, um, medics, that sort of thing. Um, I think they they'll you know they'll know what signs to look out for. You know, fatigue, weight loss, irritability, mood swings, um, you know, changes in reproductive functioning. So, for example, if an athlete starts off with you working with you and she's eumenorrheic and six months later she's amenorrheic obviously that's a telltale sign and um, so there are lots of noticeable symptoms but you have to look for them you have to ask about them it, it's knowing what to ask I mean I was delighted when you invited me for this podcast because I think a lot of people are scared to to ask questions to female athletes about menstrual cycle and um, you know um, 
I think people still think that, you know, a lady should ask another lady about them. You know, I absolutely disagree with that. Um, you know, I currently have a, a male PhD student who's, you know, working actively in this area of research. You know, we never have problems recruiting or speaking to female athletes. So we, we, need to, we need to ask. We need to be watching out for these symptoms. We need to know what to ask um, within that. So hopefully your listeners now sort of would be able to say how long is your menstrual cycle and if they say 10 days they know there's a problem so knowing what to ask is important knowing what to look for is important obviously if you're elite there should be a good team who who are on the lookout for those sort of things i guess for those people who who aren't linked with a, a, an established team um maybe their coach whoever they train with um personal trainers um you know um, training partners i think for parents this is a, a real issue with um, you know, adolescent athletes, so, you know, the young, talented athletes. I think, you know, mums and dads, especially with the female athletes, need to be looking out for um, these issues. What we don't want to see is something that is um, sport-based, so something that starts off being a genuine um, energy restriction for a sporting reason, becoming disordered eating, you know, that there's a really fine line. So, and obviously then at that point you veer into, you know, mental health considerations. So I think obviously mums and dads um, need to be looking out for those. So maybe an easy one is menstrual characteristics for, you know, adolescent females. But obviously I, I would want to include our, our young male athletes within that. So again, mums and dads looking out for, you know, maybe their you know sons not hitting the milestones of puberty at the right sort of time and mm. um, because you know whilst we don't have this established triad with with, with the guys just yet um, I mean it's perfectly plausible that they're going to suffer in a similar way you know they're weight conscious body conscious they have lightweight sports they have weight category sports they have aesthetic sports so it's absolutely plausible that this could happen to them so it's probably looking out for growth and maturation and, and that's difficult because these are, you know, young guys who are already changing their body shape for the purposes of sport. So it's a difficult one. But again, maybe things like mood swings, acne, you know, other things outside of just body composition may help parents notice that. So there's a lot to look for. There are, um, there are questionnaires that you can use. There are some obviously very established questionnaires for um, disordered eating. So, so you have those. In terms of um, menstrual cycle, we, we don't really have a, a, a national or a global accepted menstrual cycle questionnaire. I guess in my experience, um, you know, from my own research or from reading research in this area, we, we tend to, each group, each research group tends to make up their own one. I think as long as you're asking the questions that you need the answers to, um, that's fine. Um, obviously, we can we can do um, body composition measurements, which which obviously you guys are, are well versed in. And, and don't forget, we can be um, we can look at um, screening bone mineral density. That's the most obvious one. So using our DEXA scanners, for example, and, and looking at um, bone mineral content and making sure that they're at the right mile, milestones and, and thresholds. So I guess there are a lot of ways to look at it. Um, and then obviously, depending on the symptoms and, and the extent, then you need to consider the, the, the appropriate treatment. And, and that's a, a whole other Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think, look, the best thing we can do is bring awareness to individuals and practitioners and coaches about this stuff. And clearly, there's a fine line between this being a temporary problem and a very serious problem. But also, there are, as there are grey areas as to, is this just some sort of, 
dietary and training strategy or is it an eating disorder you know and the consequences of that are not just physiological or biological but they're also psychological it can be very very dangerous area to be in so i think obviously where in doubt we really should refer um if, if we are concerned or, or maybe see some of these things the, these things happening at the very least to, to talk to someone who's more knowledgeable about this stuff and, and see where we are um but we talked about um a little bit about gender differences here you know males and females um but there's another two areas here which be potentially age young and old and also ethnicity of course um so, so are there any implications within this sort of subject uh, for those two populations? Well, I mean, probably the group that, that I, I know the most about is, is or, or the sort of the, the situation that I know the most about is, is the ageing one. Mm. So just because I, I like to move the goalposts frequently, um, obviously the menstrual cycle only refers to that time post-puberty um, up until the menopause. So obviously... When you get um, anybody, whether it's a, a recreational um, active individual or, or an athlete, come to you, um, once uh, I'm talking, sorry, back to females again, um, once they reach, well, I mean, anything from 40 upwards, um, particularly around the you know, age of 50, then you've got the menopause to, to consider. And luckily, this is a, a, quick, a quick one. It's not nearly as complicated or, or long-winded as the menstrual cycle. But all your listeners need to know is that with um, the menopause, estrogen and progesterone levels decline significantly. Um, so you lose all of that nice cyclical um, um, hormone um, um, pulses and spikes and, and troughs. You, you, you get rid of all of that. And essentially, you, you flatline that profile and, and estrogen is downregulated. Unfortunately, though, that's really bad news for your bones. Um, so obviously, this is why people, um, you know, mistake oh, osteoporosis is a disease of the elderly. You know, little old ladies. Well, that's the that it generally happens. So if you've never done any sport in your life, if you're not talking about reds or um, female athlete triad, you know, you you can age. You you hit the menopause. You lose your estrogen. You you know um, develop osteoporosis. So, so that can happen anyway. I would then argue with those athletes who say, oh, you know, that's for the old and say, well, yeah, that's for the old. But you're, you know, you're speeding up that process because if you're down regulating your estrogen during what should be that lovely cyclical time that's protecting your bone, if you're doing that on purpose, you know, as part of your sporting career, you're just, you know, phase shifting everything. That's going to happen so much sooner. And, you know, even outside of bone, we know that low levels of, of estrogen and progesterone have other, you know, health effects. It affects the cardiovascular system. It, you know, it's linked in with some, you know, different types of cancer. So really, you know, in terms of thinking about aging, you know, reproductive functioning still has a massive impact on health and then potentially performance too. Because what you're doing is in terms of performance. If you read a great paper, we all agree, this great paper said, you know, high levels of estrogen increases muscle strength. Well, if you've got like a master's athlete who's, you know, 50 years old, well, she doesn't have any high estrogen. She is very low estrogen. So it still has the potential to affect performance. So you're seeing, you know, a very much an age-related response. So in, in that respect, yes, we must consider aging within this whole model of, you know, performance, health and, and reproductive functioning. Yeah, no, absolutely. And of course, that's my favorite subject area. It's all about context, of course. So, um, but I, I think, 
I think that's a really important point that you've made there, and we should be thinking about that, particularly those that are working with recreational athletes, uh, particularly uh, females, like you say, you know, in their 50s and 60s, who, you know, there's a lot more now. I mean, particularly with this growth of triathlon, for example, there's a lot of females getting into triathlons, um, and um, there are plenty of 50 and 60 and even 70-year-olds and, and upwards of that are females. But also for personal trainers that are working with um, women to get them back into shape post uh, children and all that sort of thing, and they'll be dieting them down and all this sort of thing. But of course, they need to be aware that combine that with the um, alterations in their own estrogen levels, the consequences of that may be yeah, they become thinner, but they also get thinner bones as well. And you can't necessarily build that back. And you need to think very seriously about the impact of your intervention on that person's health rather than just what they look like. Um, fascinating. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, um, if, if you're considering, you know, the personal trainers and, and the coaches, when they're working with these women, particularly those who maybe have been previously sedentary, or as you said, you know, you're looking at women who have had babies and, you know, had excessive gestational weight gain, you know, it's great to get these women active again, absolutely no doubt, but they need to be choosing the right activities for them. And, you know, you see a lot of, you know, swimming and water-based activities for the elderly. And whilst, you know, that is better than nothing, absolutely, I'm, I'm not saying, you know, I, I absolutely believe in any activity, but if they're going to be active and they're potentially at risk of, you know, impaired bone health, for example, then it would be better to prescribe something that's obviously weight-bearing and with the right amount of impact because obviously that will, you know, help protect against that, you know, age-related and estrogen-related decline in, in bone health. So it is particularly important to, to recognize who these individuals are. Um, so, yeah, so appreciating the menopause um, in females, considering the andropause um, in, in males. So looking at that, you know, age-related decline in testosterone and the potential health and performance um, effects that that might have. I would just maybe add the caveat that, you know, some people don't believe in the andropause. And I don't know, again, see both sides of the argument. Okay, it's not as easy to pinpoint as, say, the menopause. And the decline is not as rapid or as stark as during the menopause. But just because it's a slower decline and just because, you know, everybody doesn't, you know, go with the sound of the klaxon doesn't mean it doesn't exist. There is undoubtedly an age-related decline in testosterone and we should consider that whether or not you like the term andropause. So absolutely, thinking about what we prescribe, how we intervene, and, and again, you know, what nutritional considerations we would have. So maximizing that. Don't forget that obviously with the postmenopausal group, obviously there's that whole branch of nutrition relating to phytoestrogens. And um, so using nutrition and diet to, you know, introduce some estrogen back into the system. And of course you may want to work alongside the medics. Um, and some of those women might be eligible for hormone replacement therapy. And as such, if they get that, they go back up in estrogen concentration. And then again, that maybe leaves you different options in terms of um, diet and exercise options. So a lot to consider. Yes, no, there certainly is. And I think, you know, the, uh, uh, the females of the world have, have given us men um, man flu. Um, we've been allowed that one, uh, albeit it's uh, it's a veiled insult about our manlyhoods. Uh, but 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 let's but let's also have male menopause. Come on, 
Uh, we, we, we should be allowed that too. So you're, this, you're welcome to that one. <laughs> thank you, thank you very much. I'm going to wait a bit before I have to get that one. Um, so um, I, I appreciate your time uh, today. That that's pretty much all we've got time for. Um, some fascinating topics um, that we've gotten into, of course, and it's an area that really hasn't been discussed that much. I know people can uh, can learn about this more. We've referenced a few things. I will add them to this uh, the webpage for this podcast in the future. I still haven't done this yet, but I will have a page for podcast soon. Um, there's um, obviously the IOC consensus statement uh, uh, from last year um, on REDS. Um, there's all kinds of, of, of published work out there on the female athlete triad. Of course, you've got your own work, so perhaps you could give us a clue um, as to how we can get hold of your papers and learn a bit more about what you guys are up to at Nottingham Trent. Um, okay, so in, in terms of sort of um, my, my work's a, a little split, um, so my early work um, related mostly to my PhD and in terms of obviously we've talked a lot about health and performance, my particular slice of that pie was, was muscle strength and I looked at all these different types of um, reproductive functioning states and, and how they influence muscle strength and you know maybe I could save you reading three or four papers and tell you that you know, that no matter what we did in, in terms of you know our research group no matter what we did to hormone concentration and by that I mean we changed them to super physiological levels so if for example during the menstrual cycle you have a a rise of you know 10 and these are arbitrary numbers if you have a rise of 10 um, um in estrogen concentration we looked at IVF and the rise in estrogen was 100 and when we did that nothing happened to maximum voluntary isometric force so that'll save you reading a few papers so all my papers basically say do what you want to hormone concentration it won't affect maximum voluntary isometric force and um, particularly of the quads and of a, a muscle in the hand I like to be specific because as I said at the start that performance is made up of so many things and and my studies were very lab based you know we controlled well we tried to control Control as much of the noise and variability as possible to get you a, a you know a relationship. So so that's the early stuff, and and you can find that under just just Elliot with, without the Elliot sales. So that was back in the in the good old days, and um, then after that, um, what you'll start to see is now a number of papers with with a similar feel, um, but they'll be from my my PhD student. And um, so those papers will be um, myself as as Elliot Sale and then Daniel Martin. And um, Dan's PhD is is really an extension of mine, which is great because I did mine such a long time ago, back in the nineties. You know, and um, so he's he's picked up this again, but he he's actually expanding it out very much more. So he's looking at you know performance. He's looking at muscle, cognitive function, and and bone health. So so some exciting stuff to watch out for from 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 him. And then in terms of sort of my other papers, you, you mentioned it briefly, which I was delighted with the inclusion in, in terms of the population is my my new sort of work on um, exercise interventions for for women. Who have who have had babies? So I'm very interested in maternal obesity and um, whether that's during or, or following pregnancy. So, so that's me. Sorry, that's a very great. long answer. <laughs> no, 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 that's great. Yes, um, actually, uh, we'll have to get you back and do another podcast uh, on some of those things. A lot of our listeners are very interested in uh, training, of course, um, and I think it would be good rather than just having very generic um, conversations or delving in the more generic uh, research about. Um, you know, gaining muscle and losing fat would be rather nice to go into more specifics uh, that relate to female physiology. So uh, we'll, we'll definitely get back onto that. But anyway, thank you, um, 
Um, Kirsty, it's been wonderful to have you on the podcast. Um, for folks that want to learn more uh, about the Guru Performance We Do Science podcast, just go to guruperformance.com. You can actually um, witness, uh, I say witness, it's not a criminal investigation. You can uh, enjoy some of um, Kirsty's lectures on the ISSN uh, diploma. Um, which is also available distance learning as well as taught um, here in London. So that's issndiploma.com. You can learn more about the uh, MSc in uh, sports nutrition that I run at Middlesex University. Just check that out uh, on there. And, of course, um, I'd like to say thank you to the folks at HealthSpan Elite who are sponsoring this podcast, uh, helping keep it all free so everyone in the world can listen to this podcast free of charge. Um, And you can learn more about those um, products at healthspan.co uk forward slash elite um, which are all tested for banned substances and form sport evidence-based supplements very good um, and i am of course laurent bannock and i'll be bringing you another podcast very soon